Planning to pursue a degree in healthcare? Discover what the International Medical University has to offer at the IMU Virtual Open Day, including scholarships and bursaries worth up to 100%. IMU is Malaysia's first private medical university, awarded the self-accreditation status by MQA and a Satara six-star rating for two consecutive years. See you online January 24th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Register at imu.edu.my slash open day. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to MSP. Um, after leaving us on a surprisingly upbeat and positive note on last week's Matt Splained, I'm fully expecting Matt Armitage to summon forth the apocalypse and cast us all screaming into the void with uh, some trepidation. I'm happy to announce that science is slick. Matt, where are you taking us first? Hey, Rich. Well, yeah, you're right to be worried because uh, I'm going to uh, start off with the end of all things. I'm going to uh, extinguish the hope for life. Uh, Fortunately, it's not here on planet Earth. Last month, it was announced that phosphine gas had been detected in the atmosphere on Venus and that that might signify the presence of life. So for those of you who, like me, aren't experts on the properties of gases, On Earth, phosphine usually comes from two sources. One is from industrial processes and the other is from bacterial activity. So no Mm. one is alleging that there are factories on Venus making alien iPhones. Uh, If they were, (laughs) they'd still be two cycles behind Android phones on Earth. But, uh, you know, I know uh, we're looking for the presence of bacterial life. So on Earth, bacteria absorb or consume mineral or other deposits of phosphate and then expel it as phosphate gas. So if the same rules apply to Venus, then phosphine gas could be a sign of bacterial life on the planet. So that would assume that organisms on Venus would be similar to Earth organisms. And that's actually a really big question. So the uh, the Cardiff University team that made the discovery, led by Jane Greaves, uh, couldn't figure out any way for the gas to be present in such large quantities in the atmosphere without some other means of production, something like bacteria or iPhones. So they concluded that it could be some form of life. However, the atmosphere on Venus is highly acidic, making it very unlikely that similar life would evolve on the planet in the same way that it has here. So according to a report on SciTech Daily, microbes are found in conditions on Earth where acid is present at levels up to 5%, but clouds on Venus can consist of up to 90% sulfuric acid. So it's unlikely that it would be life in a form similar to to what we've currently observed. So it's probably a false positive that leaves you as the only life form in the galaxy. Yep, Matt Thanos, as uh, my full name goes. Uh, But according (laughs) to uh, another piece, this one on New Scientist, verification of the data and cross-referencing with older data about the planet's atmosphere doesn't confirm the findings. Independent analysis of the team's results has also cast doubt that it's phosphine that was detected. So is this good news or is it 
bad news. Well, I guess it's bad news for the people who wanted some kind of check or balance on my alien powers, but it is actually good news for science. As New Scientist points out, uh, this is a potentially life-altering discovery, but it's not one that we can afford to take at face value. It needs to be rechecked. It needs a lot more research. So they point Mm. out that it's actually a sign that the checks and balances in that process of scientific discovery are still working, even at a time when COVID has uh, has ensured that many labs and telescopes and research units are operating at reduced capacity. Okay, fine. Um, Can we have a slightly less confusing story next? No, uh, but we can have a mind-boggling and slightly baffling one. Uh, Oh, go on then. Yeah, you uh, you know how we're always told that you can't just magic things out of thin air? Yep. Well, this next couple of stories suggest that Actually, we can. Uh, Diamonds, uh, one of the uh, most valuable substances on our planet, uh, and they have some amazing properties. It's the hardest and most thermally conductive natural material on the planet, and it also makes your fingers and ears sparkle. But but diamonds are just carbon. Uh, One of the most common substances in the universe. Uh, It's the 15th most plentiful on our planet, I think but they're found deep underground in only a handful of places on the planet. And the environmental cost of extracting them is very high, hence the rarity and the price. So according to the piece I read in The Guardian, I think producing a one-carat stone can involve shifting a 1,000 tonnes of rock and earth, using 3,890 litres of water, and releasing more than 108 kilograms of carbon dioxide emissions in the process. And that's without getting into the whole blood diamond conversation. So a British startup called Sky Diamonds is planning to create thousands of carats of carbon negative, not neutral, but negative, lab-grown diamonds made entirely from the sky. So let's get this right. In the first story, we've eradicated life on Venus. And now you want to revive the pseudoscience of, what, alchemy? Yes, producing nuggets of purest green for the Blackadder fans <laughs> out there. Uh, and I didn't find this in an ad at the back of a vintage comic alongside sea monkeys, in case you're wondering. It's not and alchemy. And 3D glasses. Yeah, it, it is proper science. Now, lab-grown diamonds, they're not actually a new thing. There are various right. ways to do it. Sky Diamonds is using a proven process called chemical vapor deposition. This involves placing a diamond seed within a sealed chamber or a diamond mill. This is then heated to 800 degrees centigrade and it's filled with methane gas. So the carbon elements in the methane gradually bond to that diamond seed. And hey presto, you have a diamond that's anatomically identical to the ones that have been pressure cooking underground for billions of years. So where does the environmental aspect of this come in? Well, Sky Diamonds wants to make them as sustainably as possible. So I said before, carbon negative. The founder of the company also founded a sustainable energy company called Ecotricity. So this isn't just some marketing bunk. I mean, they're they're very dedicated to doing this correctly. The company Mm. uses carbon dioxide captured directly from the atmosphere to form the diamonds. And the process is powered using wind and solar electricity and uses water collected from rainfall. So to produce the hydrogen needed to make the methane, they split rainwater molecules using a renewable energy powered electrolysis machine at their plant in Strood in Gloucestershire. 
Initially, the plant should produce around 200 carats of green diamonds a month, which could be scaled eventually up to about 1,000 carats. So we may just have created a fifth element. We've got earth, water, air, fire, and now we're adding bling. <laughs> I love that. Um, anyway, you, you promised a, a second story that's uh, equally as baffling. Well, yeah, this one is conjuring water out of thin air. Uh, we call that rain, right? I think we're going to have to resort to presidential debate rules and mute your mic during the off questions. Um, but you're <laughs> not actually too far off the point, though. You know, we already have atmospheric water harvesting machines that can extract water from fog and even from dew, but they rely on fairly heavy humidity levels to work effectively and efficiently. And of course, mm. if there's no fog, you can't defog. And those processes are often very resource intensive themselves in terms of the amount of electricity they consume to extract that sky juice. So the dichotomy is that water is often desperately needed in places that are much drier and have lower humidity levels. And of course, we know that access to clean fresh water is set to be or to become one of the biggest challenges of coming decades. There are plenty right. of future gaming scenarios where water rights and control of rivers could become flashpoints for the wars of tomorrow. And, you know, we're physically watching as states in the US run dry. So in addition to better water conservation, we badly need innovative ways to harvest water. And this is another green or eco-conscious solution. That's actually a little bit trickier to answer. Uh, what essentially is happening here is that it's external power neutral. It's a system that absorbs water even in very low humidity locations at night and then uses heat energy from the sun, solar power, during the day to squeeze out that water. I'm not right. sure about the eco-credentials of the materials themselves, which is why I'm not committing an answer to that part of the question. But certainly Chicken. this is a solution that could be used in places that are very dry and don't have reliable electricity supplies, which is, you know, huge swaths of our planet. So it is a solution that could, for example, reduce the reliance of communities in developing nations on remote wells and also reduce their, their vulnerability to drought and other fluctuations in the water supply. Now, I know you're itching to tell us how it works, so get on with it. Well, the tech has been pioneered by a team under Alina Lapotin at MIT. Now, the whole doohickey looks like a thick solar panel, and it builds on a proof-of-concept device that MIT created three years ago. So the current development is close to what you might think of as a public beta. The device right. contains uh, an absorbent material called a zeolite inside it, which collects water vapor from the air at night. That's the bit I'm not sure about in terms of the eco-friendly terms. I don't know how those zeolites are sourced or produced, but the tech works because the material is very porous. It has a large internal surface area, and that means it can absorb the tiny quantities of water that are held in the kind of almost dry air that you find in desert environments. And using the current system, they can produce around 
three quarters of a litre of drinkable water per day per square metre of the zeolite panel. And I'm assuming that uh, they'll want to increase that output and make it more efficient. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether the research team is looking at industrial scale models like solar farms that cover huge areas. But obviously, you're going to need several metres of surface to meet the needs of one person for a single day. So efficiency Mm. is definitely uppermost in getting it beyond this trial phase. And one way they can do that is to make it harvest more often. So, for example, they might use other energy and heat sources as well as solar power so that they can speed up those cycles. But they're looking at ways to increase the efficiency by looking into new zeolite materials that are being developed that are even more absorbent. And of course, they're also trying to make the system more robust, make it more portable, and that will make it easier to carry it and to, you know, drag and drop it and deploy it as needed. All right. uh, When we come back, more science from the high energy Matt Armitage. You tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Backing Feminist Movements, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. And uh, this week, it seems to be on a bit of a clean energy jag this week. I believe we have a story about hydrogen next, Matt. Well, way to go with the uh, clickbait. I'm sure the words, a story about hydrogen, has the folks at home quivering (laughs) in anticipation. Uh, But yes, this is a story about how plastic waste can be converted into hydrogen that can be used to power buses and cars and that kind of thing. But it's a real mad scientist kitchen sink type story. Again, the concept itself isn't a new idea. We already use various uh, conversion processes to extract hydrogen from waste plastic. And I'll be honest, I mean, I I didn't realise there was so much hydrogen in our plastics. Even that throwaway plastic bag from the corner shop can contain as much as 14% hydrogen. And the Mm. processes to extract it are typically very energy intensive. The plastic is baked at around 750 degrees C to convert it into syngas, which is a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide. And then you need a second step to separate that hydrogen and carbon monoxide from each other. And where does this kitchen sink come in? Well, it's not really a kitchen sink, but a blender and a microwave. Uh, And the normal kind of blender that we use at home. Uh, A guy called Peter Edwards and his team at the University of Oxford used a blender to crunch plastic into small pieces and mixed them with a catalyst made of iron oxide and aluminium oxide. And then, because it's what every small child does when they want to see what's going to happen, they put it in a microwave to see what would happen. Um, No, I mean, they're they're chemists, so they knew what should happen and they used a a microwave generator, not a kitchen microwave. But the effects were pretty instant. The nuked plastic released about 97% of its hydrogen within just a few seconds. Basically, because the plastic doesn't absorb the microwaves, it only uses a small amount of energy. So the microwave energy only has to heat the catalyst. And it's a single step rather than a dual step process. Yeah, so it's a lot faster and that 
also gives you more energy efficiencies. So obviously the team is using a handheld blender, so they do need to scale up and see whether these gains are maintained at industrial scale. But if it works out, then you know maybe we have a new tool in our arsenal to uh, help deal with and make something useful out of the millions of tons of plastic waste that we produce every year. Well done. I think that's uh, four stories so far, and you haven't managed to scare anyone yet. Challenge accepted. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, cameras linked to AI that can be used to analyze micro expressions. Well, researchers yes. at Cornell University have gone a step further. They've invented a system that you wear as earphones or headphones, and they're mounted with cameras and the cameras are aimed at the side of your head and linked to machine learning. They can actually recreate your facial expressions by analysing movements in your cheek lines. Wait, so it works if you're wearing a mask, for example? Well, yeah. So, you know, if you think your bosses can't see what you're mumbling at them behind that mask, in the future, you might have to think again. All right. Um, myself and I imagine a lot of our listeners are kind of struggling with this right now. What exactly could that be used for? I really struggled too. Um, I was just sitting there thinking, what on earth is this for? Uh, but the inventor, Cheng Zhang, uh, lists a couple of scenarios. Now, because it reconstructs the movement of your face, it could potentially be used as a silent interface for voice commands. Before you all say, what, why, huh. uh, voice control devices are fantastic, but they do require you to be pretty noisy. So Alexa, switch on the bathroom light, is less useful if you wake your partner up in the process. Or, for example, when you're in public spaces, you know, in countries like Japan, making that kind of noise with your devices in public spaces is considered quite antisocial. Now, the mm. second purpose is a little more intriguing. Uh, Zhang hopes that uh, it will be used as an emoji input device. So rather than say smiley face, you actually smile or frown or laugh or make vomit face and your real emotions are captured and put into the message. That seems like a, an awful lot of potential privacy violations just for an emoji. Well, yes, and that's something the inventors acknowledge as well. You know, because of Zoom and video calls, I end up wearing my AirPods for a good chunk of the day. Not to mention mm. when I'm catching up on fantastic podcasts like the one you're currently listening to. So there's an awful lot of information that a third party could tell about you from wearing a device like this. As to whether that justifies creating them, I'm really not sure. So I watched the mm. video that accompanies the uh, the publishing of the paper and they use a, a 3D render. So you have the model wearing the device and the expressions are transferred to this 3D deepfake type head. So I imagine this tech could be used in filmmaking, uh, you know, to get an accurate portrayal of the voice actor's features into characters in CGI and animation without a big intrusive rig. In any case, it's still in development phase. It's not anywhere near public release, but it is a really interesting example of the direction that wearable and voice control tech could take. So would you rather have a story about robot artists or colonoscopies next? Um, one of those sounds a lot less painful than the other. 
colonoscopies it is. No, we'll we'll go with uh, painting. Uh, we please <laughs> we come back to uh, this issue that the the painting, not the colonoscopies, quite a, a few times on the show. Uh, what constitutes creativity? And can machines be creative? Now, I am a little bit on the fence with this one. We can certainly use them as tools for creativity. Whether or not they're creative in and of themselves is a a little bit more difficult to determine. But researchers under Mariah Santos at the Georgia Institute of Technology have created a system that allows an artist to select regions of a canvas to be painted by a swarm of robots, uh, 12 robots in total. So they're really just uh, remote control brushes? Well, they're a little bit more than that. So the artist has an abstract notion of what they want and where it should be painted. But the robots act collectively and collaboratively. They're aware of each other and they know what's been painted before. So they're linked by computer to a machine brain. It means that they're aware of what each other is doing individually and also what's being created collectively. So the overlapping colours and patterns aren't as random as they might be perceived to be. At the moment, the machines are using light projections rather than paint, and they are wheeled robots, so there would be an issue with their wheels spreading the paint around the canvas. But Mariah Santos doesn't see why further versions of these systems couldn't use flying drones instead, either brushing or spraying the canvas. Plus, at this prototype level, the colour mixing is a lot more straightforward when you're using light than it is, obviously, with pigment dyes. So... Apparently, you want me to tell the listeners that this is a story for the birds? Yes. uh, For hundreds, probably thousands of years, humans have tried to copy birds in order to achieve flight. Now, I don't know if this is still the same for younger listeners, but when I was a kid, and I imagine you saw these as well, Rich, on TV, Mm. you'd sometimes see old black and white footage of the early days of flying. You'd see people wearing wingsuits or... or, you know, uh, engines used to make the the wings on a plane fly up and down and people would jump off piers and into the sea. And of course, it never worked. So the closest we've come are those flying squirrel suits that you see some of the uh, extreme sports crowd using. Until now, that is, uh, a team at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne has created a drone that borrows from the biology of a hawk, the uh, northern goshawk to be precise. And it flaps its wings to fly? Well, we're not quite at that point yet, but what they wanted to do was develop a drone that can fly long distances across cities, but is still manoeuvrable enough to fly around objects, which presumably means buildings. So they built the uh, drone with sheets that mimic the tail and wing feathers of the hawk. With its uh, wing and tail fully spread, the drone can gain height very, very quickly. And the tail moves like a hawk's too. It goes up and down, it goes left and right. And that allows it to adjust its altitude very, very easily. And it can even tuck either wing, allowing it to bank and turn with minimal effort. So it's reducing its drag. And Mm. when it reduces top speed, again, just like a bird, it reduces its drag by tucking those feathers in to reduce its profile. Is there an engineering purpose to this? Yes, because it allows the drone to manipulate the air more like a bird to make use of currents. Uh, Drones and planes basically use blunt force propulsion to stay in the air and to be piloted. And that makes them very energy hungry. Birds on the other part, it's all about riding the currents and staying in the air 
while minimizing the amount of energy that's expended. So initial tests have shown that the model is very energy efficient. And presumably from that, uh, quite attractive for stuff like military uses. Well, that's not something that was uh, explicitly mentioned, but they did mention that uh, its handling allows it to be much more controllable, that it can accelerate or decelerate um, much more rapidly than most other drones. And also it can hang in the air at low speeds or suddenly climb or dive, which, again, as you said, are are probably quite attractive for military uses. So Mm. I guess we can all understand that, you know, that there are potential offensive and defensive uh, capabilities that this might have. But in and of itself, it really is quite a a beautiful model. Fair enough. Um, Why don't then uh, you leave us with another chill in our tails? Well, this final story, a very quick one, is another robot-based one from more researchers in Switzerland, oddly, uh, showing off their imaginative inhumanity today, I guess. Uh, Often we find that uh, machines that are trained in simulations struggle to perform as well in the real world. For example, no matter how well you can model terrain inside a simulation, machines often find it more difficult to negotiate in real life. The machines really are coming to get us. Well, Junho Lee and a team at uh, ETH Zurich trained a neural network to control a four-legged robot in a simulation full of obstacles like hills and stairs. One of the reasons for doing this, and we've all seen the videos of robots learning to walk or move, is that neural nets learn by making mistakes. So if you Mm. have an expensive robot, the last thing you want is for it to fall over a hundred times before the net figures out how to make it stand and balance. So often things still go a little less smoothly in the the real world because, you know, those those variables you put into the simulation uh, are not representative of what you find in the actual world. But that's Mm. not been the case for Lee's machine. When they transferred the net to the robot, it was able to move at twice the speed in the real world than it managed in the simulations. So yes, to answer your question... The machines are coming, and they're faster than even their programmers imagined. Well, thanks for that, Matt. You have, of course, been listening to uh, Science's Slick here on Matt Splained. On BFM 89.9, the business station, I'm Rich Bradbury. Matt, of course, we'll be back same time, same place next week. And if you want to hear more of this or any of the uh, transcripts for this show, head over to culturepop.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.